We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today's guest is Mark McCarthy, a senior fellow at the Institute for Technology Law and Policy at Georgetown Law School. Mark has been laboring in the vineyards of technology regulation for years, back to the time when you weren't allowed to say technology and regulation in the same voice. Today, we're going to talk about his book, Regulating Digital Industries, How Public Oversight Can Encourage Competition, Protect Privacy, and ensure free speech. It's a good book, so I'm looking forward to the discussion. Mark, thanks for doing this. We're going to talk today about your book, Regulating Digital Industries, How Public Oversight Can Encourage Competition, Protect Privacy, and Ensure Free Speech. All topics close to our heart. So we'll just have a conversation about the book, about these issues. You know I have strong views on some of them. I know you have strong views on others, so it ought to be fun. Caitlin, do you want to kick us off? Sure. And yes, I have strong views too. Not oh, no. um, some of my views. <laughs> some of my views don't always align with yours, Jim. But this should make for a really interesting conversation. First of all, Mark, congratulations on the book. Your book makes the case for a sectoral regulator for what you call the digital sector. So that includes search, e-commerce, social media, mobile apps, ad tech. I was wondering if you could just set the scene for us and explain what problems are you aiming to address? In other words, why is the current status quo not enough? Yeah, that's great. And and, and thank you guys for, for doing this. It's good to be chatting with you about, about the book and the topics raised by the book. I know you both have been involved in these issues for some time. But first, I, I want to thank the, the people at Brookings, you know, especially Daryl West and Nicole Turner-Lee and, and, and Tom Wheeler, for providing a nice framework uh, for for putting together the book. And of course, I want to thank my wife and son for their support. And, and the, the students at, and the faculty at CCT, the Communications, Culture, and Technology Program at Georgetown, have been enormously helpful. In fact, the structure of the book really derives from the courses I teach there on privacy, tech competition, and content moderation. And, and to, to put the, the book in context, and Tom Wheeler, Phil Fervier, and, and Gene Kimmelman have written on this topic of calling for a digital regulator. And Harold Felt at, at Public Knowledge was really a leader. He came out with a book several years ago urging a digital regulator. And now Congress is beginning to pick it up. Warren and Senators Warren and Graham have got a bill in that area. And so does uh, Senators Walsh and, and Bennett. Uh, so I think it's an idea whose time is coming. What the problem is, and I actually don't spend much time in the book on that because there have been so many articles and white papers and books describing the problem. But the short summary is that the internet is not what we thought it was going to be back in the 1990s. Uh, we're seeing concentration uh, of the industry, we're seeing privacy invasion, and we're seeing substantial information disorder instead of the wonderful utopia we thought what there was going to be back there. And I think policymakers have gone beyond their initial idea of letting the industry regulate itself. Their, I think, deregulatory impulses run its course. 
And they're now looking to regulate in all of those three areas. Uh, you can tell by looking at the bills that almost passed in the preceding Congress that policymakers have made the turn to regulation. And so this book is really a contribution to that, to that discussion if we're going to address these problems of concentration, privacy invasion, and information disorder, how best should we should we do that? So you bring up a couple themes, and one of them is the theme, of course, of competition. And competition is what I thought was one of the things that was interesting in the book is that the change in thinking about competition from that lower prices are the goal to some, I think you called it cultural, cultural artifact. And that was really interesting because it makes it sort of a little more ideological, explains it. It's not that consumers are harmed by higher prices from a monopoly. It's that they're harmed by the effects of the lack of competition, mm -hmm. um, which is a is topic I hope we can talk about a little more about. Do you want to start by telling us about that? Yeah, I, I think that's a good summary. I mean, the the, the actual economic problem is not novel. I mean, it's it, it's what happens in network industries. It happened mm. in telecom. It, it happened before this in computer software and operating systems. But competition failed in search, social media, and e-commerce, even though it started off in a robust way because network effects means that people like a single supplier. They, they, they don't mm -hmm. go to a whole bunch of different places. Yeah find their friends and family and the merchants that they're interested in. So, so that creates a strong incentive for a single supplier or at, at most a couple of suppliers. So that's the problem. Uh, the new thinking, though, is not so much on identifying the problem. It's on what do we do to fix it? And I think you've got a renewal of the, the old-fashioned Brandeisian approach to fixing competition, which is not to have a one- time action that will sort of fix the problem and then we can go back to the situation as normal. It's a, it's a sense that we need an ongoing regulatory structure to install competition in an uncompetitive industry and then to try to maintain it. And that approach really is a regulatory approach. It's not really a law enforcement approach where you, you find someone who's broken the law, you put in place a remedy, and then you go on to something else. So that's really the turn that that uh, people have made much more clearly in Europe uh, and in the United Kingdom than in the United States, because we actually haven't passed a new piece of legislation in the area. But that's the thinking behind the competition reform bills that were surfaced in the Congress, previous Congress, and call for things like interoperability and data portability and a ban on self-preferencing and a regulatory structure at the FTC to enforce those those new requirements. Speaking of the FTC, I, I think something that's really interesting is this idea of creating a new separate digital agency instead of adapting those with existing expertise in antitrust or data protection like the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice. I was wondering if you could talk about how this new digital agency would interact with existing government agencies and why your book calls for a new regulator altogether. Yeah, I, I think the pieces of legislation I described go directly to the idea of a digital regulator. They, they set up a whole new administrative structure. 
they describe in detail how it would work and and so on. And it's clearly designed to be a separate entity. And I think ultimately that's the right answer. And I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how the new digital agency should be structured. It should be an independent agency. It should be you know structured in in a way that is accountable to Congress and to the courts, but it it should have substantial independence from the from the administration and so on. But but I do think that as a practical matter, the way in which we'll get to a digital agency is through a two-step process. And you can see that in the way that Congress has addressed these different issues of, of competition, privacy, and social media content moderation. When, when they come to regulate in the area of competition, they say we need a, an enforcer, and the enforcer is the Federal Trade Commission. When they look at privacy and say we need a new privacy regime at the national level, they say, hey, the FTC would be the, the right place to put the implementation and enforcement. And when they get to the transparency requirements for content moderation, they say we need an agency that's a specialist in consumer protection. Well, that's the Federal Trade Commission. So, so uh, they've, in effect, I think almost by accident, designated the Federal Trade Commission as the single digital regulator to handle all of these different problems. And I don't think that's a bad result. I, I think the idea of having a single administrative agency to focus on these three disparate problems and to treat them in a kind of holistic way is probably a pretty good idea. But I do think over time, it'll become clear that the FTC isn't really set up to be that agency. It's, it's if you think about its history, it's been since its beginning, a uh, an agency focused less on regulation and much more on law enforcement. It finds wrongdoers, it goes to court, it tells them to stop, it proposes a remedy, and then it goes on and does something else. It's rarely involved in the promulgation and implementation of regulations. And it's not a sector-specific agency. It's focused on the entire economy. And what you need really is an agency that is more like the Federal Communications Commission that's focused on a single industry or a group of industries and has as its responsibility to install and maintain competition, promote diversity, and so on, to protect the public interest within that, that industry. So I, I think over time, it'll become clear that you've got a kind of mismatch between the agency's history, structure, and tradition, and the digital responsibilities that have been assigned to them. And I think over time, Congress will say that's not working, but we have to spin off the agency to be its own separate entity and give a, them a special mandate and their own administrative structure. And Congress has done that before many times. I mean, it started at the FCC, which was set up in 1934, but, but the initial attempt to regulate telecommunications rates, you know, was assigned to the Interstate Commerce Committee in 1910. And uh, the Interstate Commerce Committee sat on that authority for 20 years and did nothing with it. And then Congress said, well, we need something a little bit better. Let's create an agency that does that and also regulates the, the broadcasting industry. We'll call them together the communications industry, telecommunications and broadcasting. And we have a single agency focused on protecting the public interest in that area. So we have, we have a history of Congress setting up an agency and then reassigning the responsibilities to a new agency when they find the existing agency can't quite do the job. The FTC, as 
run into some headwinds in some of their efforts. And one of the questions I was thinking when I was reading the book is, has this latest effort to create a regulatory structure for the internet, has it run out of steam? And mm -hmm. is in part that's because there's opposition to what you're calling the neo-Brandesian approach. But are, is this something we're going to see happen or is it is it on the to-do list for next Congress? I don't think it's going to happen in this Congress. I, I do think for, certainly for, for this session of the Congress, uh, there's no opportunity to make progress. And next next session is uh, in an election year. I think people hmm. be distracted. So as a practical matter, I think it's off until the following Congress and the new administration. But I'm an optimist on this stuff. I, you know, I, I think Paul Barrett did a review of the book in Just Security, and he said, it's an optimist guide to tech regulation. And uh, and so, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to put on the mantle of optimist. But look, you know, fundamental reforms in this area almost never get done in a single Congress. You know, regulation almost succeeded last Congress. It, it, uh, it didn't make it. But I think ultimately it's a matter of when, not if. And... Uh, mm. And we'll, 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 I think we'll get there. But by the way, I think the reaction against the neo-Brandeisian stuff, I think, is is superficial. If you take a look at, at what's going on at the state level, the idea that uh, Republicans are sort of, what do we want to go after big tech for? They're a company. We we love companies. It's just not happening. I mean, they're joining in on the on the suits uh, against Google. They're, they're joining in the suits against Meta. And it's a bipartisan effort at the state AG level. And I think that ultimately will transfer to the federal level when Congress gets back to considering the issue of, of how to regulate big tech. In addition to getting enough buy-in from Congress, do you think that there's enough buy-in and trust from the American public? Out of the three categories that you mentioned, I feel like there is a lot of consensus among most Americans that data privacy is important. Antitrust is maybe slightly more controversial. There are a lot of differing opinions there. But I think content moderation out of these three categories might be the one that's the less clear or the most opaque to the general public. We saw how there was a backlash to the Disinformation Governance Board within the, the Department of Homeland Security. This was only meant to be a working group to explore disinformation. It was not meant to remove content online. Yet, because of that backlash, DHS actually disbanded the board really quickly. So do you think that a digital regulator that aims to explore content moderation could potentially see that same backlash from Americans? Yeah, it, it might. I mean, it depends on, on, on how it's done. I do think uh, many of the people on sort of my side of the political spectrum, the, uh, the progressive and liberal side, have, have underestimated the sense of isolation and concern on the conservative side when it comes to social media activity. And, and it's pretty clear to me that social media companies are operating a content moderation system that is pretty arbitrary and opaque. And not everybody gets affected by it because, you know, most people stay away from the controversial stuff. They just want to, you know, share things about what, what they're thinking or what they're eating or the movies they're seeing or whatever. When people run afoul of it, they're annoyed. And I do think some measure of transparency, some sort of series of explanations, some accountability measures, some possibility for seeking redress would be enormously popular with the public. And it would help to transform 
as I say, this opaque and arbitrary system into one that's more accountable. I think that would be popular. I also think it would, it's the most likely to survive First Amendment scrutiny. Once you get beyond that and you do things like what the, is going on in the Texas and Florida bill, once you get beyond that, things get a lot more controversial, as you point out. But even there, I, I think the public might be very concerned, right, if, if one of the big tech platforms suddenly consciously took sides on political activity. Uh, you're seeing some of this in the TikTok fight, right? You're uh, seeing but, some of it in the Twitter fight. In the Twitter <laughs> oh, fight. Pardon me, X. How could I say Twitter? How could you say Twitter after all these months? In the book, I, I taunt my uh, progressive friends, what, what if what if Murdoch got hold of Facebook and tuned it according to the editorial policy of Fox News? Well, well, that's a little bit of what's going on with Musk and, and X or Twitter. So I, I do think there's 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 a concern that the power of these platforms to affect public discourse is something we should really be concerned about. And if, so far, it's been the the conservatives as the canary in the coal mine saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this this isn't the right way to do things. And there has been a, a public policy reaction to that in the Texas and Florida social media bills. I think the Texas bill especially is probably weak, but it's not a crazy idea to say that the social media companies should have a policy of political neutrality. They shouldn't be just promoting one side of controversial issues of public importance. They say they're doing that and they have no difficulty with that as a, as a goal. They just don't want a government agency telling them how to do that. Uh, and I do think the Texas bill is unconstitutional. You know, it's void for vagueness. Who the hell knows what a political point of view is under the bill? It's not even clear that the social media companies can deal with hate speech under that kind of requirement. But something that says, you know, I, I'd like to make sure that I get to hear my political candidates, that, that it has a must-carry requirement for pro political candidates that's parallel to what's in place for broadcasting right now. That might be a little bit more popular. You know, the idea that Donald Trump could be running for president of the United States and could be banned from major social media platforms and could never appear there at all. That strikes, I think, most people as being a step too far. So I think I think Musk Carry fares a little bit better in the court of public opinion. And interestingly, I think it's got a better chance of surviving First Amendment challenge because it harkens back to the must-carry requirements that have been upheld by the Supreme Court in the case of cable-carrying broadcast stations. The Supreme Court might up uphold that for social media required carriage of, of political candidates as well. So one thing that that, that I, I didn't notice as much in the book is how you would coordinate with the Europeans, you know, because it's the Europeans who actually are doing all the regulation in this space while we're temporarily in gridlock. So why would this fit in with, and you, you note in a couple of places that there's, there's some parallels between how you are thinking about this problem and how the Europeans think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they're parallels. I'm not a big fan of sort of trying to coordinate regulation across the globe. I think mm -hmm. we try to do our, our thing. They try to do their thing, but there seems to be a kind of, convergence. If you think about the, the Digital Services Act in the European Union, for example, it's essentially a transparency regime. You've got measures that say 
users will get explanations. There is a redress mechanism and so on. There's a requirement for transparency in assessing systemic risks and describing the uh, mitigation measures that the companies have taken. And there's a requirement for access for researchers to get, to, uh, get hold of, of uh, social media data as approved by the European regulator. Mm -hmm. So that, that framework looks very similar to what the United States was trying to put in place in some of its social media proposals. The European Union succeeded and the US is on the way, but it's, it's parallel. I think the Digital Markets Act that the European Union put in place has the same general approach as the proposals for uh, competition reform for tech that have uh, been considered in the Senate and the House. It's a regulatory structure. You say that the companies have to abide by rules like interoperability and data portability, and, and they can't self-preference. And there's a regulatory structure on top of that to enforce that. You don't wait for the companies to do something wrong and then bring a case under the antitrust laws. You put in place ex-ante rules that constrain their behavior before the fact. Mm. That seems to be a similar approach that we're taking as well. So I, I do think that there's a convergence of these uh, approaches. Uh, if you look at privacy, Europe has had their digital privacy law in place for years now. The GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, has been in place for years. And much of the movement in the United States towards a national privacy law uh, mimics uh, much of what the Europeans have put in, in place as well, especially the, the idea that there should be a legitimate basis for collecting and processing information. So I, I, I do think there's a coordination there. I don't think you need to go to the harmonization step and you know all sit down and mm. sort of draft uh, laws together. But I do think there's- Hey, been... the TTC is looking for work. I know, they, they got to do something these days. You know, uh, They tried to do their best on AI and see where that got them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So but maybe just to follow up real quickly, there are concerns sometimes with ex-ante regulation because the concern is the regulator will guess wrong on the direction things will take. Would you say we have enough data now that we don't have to worry about that? Or I worry about it for some things because there's a clear link between ex-ante regulation in Europe and damage to economic growth, but there might be ways around it. Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think the, the idea that ex-ante regulation is in, intrinsically and permanently the enemy of innovation. I, I think that's, I think that's wrong. I think I, I think regulation can be done in a in a way that's mm. that's silly and harmful and just creates a whole bunch of bureaucratic steps that don't protect anybody. That can be done, but I think uh, properly applied, the regulation should be uh, something that promotes innovation. It, it, the, the weirdest thing about the the internet and the delay in regulation is. I was talking at another event a, a couple of days ago, and uh, one of the participants said that never has such a transformative technology been outside of public supervision for so long. I mean, it, it really is only in the last 40 years that regulation and innovation have been seen as, as enemies. Before that, regulation was, was the handmaiden of innovation. It's the way in which you got new technology to the market, broadcasting, airlines, financial services, pharmaceuticals, they all flourished under regulation. I mean, the FDA, you know, was established in 1906 and, and no one in his right mind would think about abolishing it 
so that we could have more innovation. Uh, so I, I do think done properly, these kind of regulations can spur innovation. Done improperly, I think they they can they can be a detriment. In our defense, in our defense, like and you go through this in your first chapter, when the commercialization of the internet occurred, people weren't sure how it would work. And for one thing, we didn't know a lot of the, the things it would bring. And people also were unsure how it would pay for itself. It had been NSF funded. And so I think that's one of the issues that the book covers pretty well, but it's a good one to talk about, which is what is the business model for the internet moving forward? And mm. we can talk about competition, which Caitlin and I don't always agree on, but we can talk about what is the business model moving forward in this yeah. regulatory scheme that you're proposing? And I don't say scheme in a bad way. <laughs> you can say regime. That's even better. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, look, I don't think it's the job of the, the digital regulator to dictate business model. I think to some degree that might that might wind up being an effect of some kind of regulation. So for example, I do think the way privacy rules are being enforced in Europe is nudging the social media companies towards a pay model as opposed to an advertising model. And the idea is um, you have to prove that you you have some sort of legal basis for collecting and processing the information. And you don't need that kind of collection and processing information to really provide a social media service. So that's not the basis. It's not really consent because if it's really consent, then the person should be able to get the service uh, without giving you the information. And, you know, it's, it's not clear that you've got a legitimate basis for collecting all this stuff and using it in a way that overrides the interest of the consumer and being protected in, in its privacy rights. So it doesn't look as though you've got a legitimate basis for, for doing what you're doing unless you say your choice is let us collect the information or pay us. And so what you see Facebook doing is getting to move in the direction of charging. They're saying, we'll give consumers the option of paying 20 bucks a month for our service. But it's, it's a, it, you know, by, by inadvertence, the privacy regulator, you know, moves towards real regulation once it goes in that direction, because the question is, is $20 a reasonable charge? I mean, if, if Facebook said, we're giving people a choice, it's a million dollars a week, and you know, everybody would say, well, that, that's not a real choice. So at some level, the charge has to be subject to public review. And you're backing yourself into what looks and feels like rate regulation when you do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think there is a, a way in which indirectly and step-by-step, step, the regulation can lead towards something that constrains the business model. But it's not, it's not the kind of thing that's built into the structure. It's the way in which you would apply privacy rules or competition rules or, or, or content moderation rules. That really complicates things because usually we rely, so if you look at the phone industry, we rely on competition to make prices reasonable, right? And in many of these things, you don't have competition, which gets right. back to the monopoly argument. So yeah. if, if Facebook says a million dollars a week, they won't. But if they set some price, $20 a week strikes me or $20 a month strikes me as a bit high. But how do you set the valuation outside of a market? There's no market for data. There's, right. no there's not really a competitor for Facebook. We're not all going to switch to Weibo. 
but that, right. those are topics that just complicate things. I know, I know Caitlin and I have talked about this, not always reaching a, a common view, so. Yeah, I feel like another challenge of anti-competition rules is that lawmakers are attempting to impose similar standards across co companies that do operate very differently and have different niches in the market. That actually brought me to another question, which is, Another debate with the Digital Markets Act in the European Union is just which companies count as technology companies. I mean, in 2023, every company operates a website, and it seems like a growing number of them are creating mobile apps as well. So if you have regulations targeted toward the digital sector, whether in Europe or the United States, and instead of the whole economy, you're going to have a debate about what the digital sector actually is. So in your book, when you talk about a specialized digital regulator, um, how do you define digital and how do you make that definition future-proof? Yeah, future-proof is the problem. I mean, I, I, I dodge the problem in the book and I do it the same way that uh, the competition bills that were considered in Congress, the, in the last Congress, the same way that they do it, that is by enumeration. I don't try to define digital. Uh, I, I just say the industries that were focused on the lines of business are search, social media, electronic commerce. I do think the mobile app ecosystem is worth regulating. And because of all the difficulties in the ad tech world, I think that is a sector that needs to be regulated as well. So I name the sectors rather than trying to define the sector. And then the uh, agency has given authority just over, over those lines of business and not over other ones. And wh why those ones? I think that's, that's, that's because that's where the, where the problems have arisen. You know, the, the failure of competition, the privacy invasions, the information disorder, that, that they exist in those lines of business. And also, they're not just sort of trivial edge lines of business that you can ignore if you don't like them. If you're going to fully participate in, in social, economic, and political life in the 21st century, you've got to be involved in search, e-commerce, and social media. You're going to use mobile apps, and like it or not, the ad tech world is going to affect you. So they have got a centrality that means it's important how they function. And that's why they count They count like the internet itself. They count like uh, financial institutions, broadcasting, and other industries that have been thought to be central to, uh, to contemporary life. Yeah, I thought that was an elegant solution to the defining the sector problem, listing out the lines of business. So that part was attractive because part of your argument depends on persuading people that we can define a sector and then have a regulator over it. What mm -hmm. are the counter arguments other than the usual? So I'll, I'll take one. This is bad for innovation. It's like maybe, but what do you what do you see as the counter arguments to this approach? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of them on the definition by enumeration. The big weakness is is the future proof question, right? These things change very very quickly. How do you respond to changes in digital industries? Zoom wasn't a major thing until the sure. COVID. Suddenly it's a big deal. Is that covered or not? How do you allow the agency to adapt to future developments in the technology and in business models? Well, there, there are two ways to do it. One, you say you have to go back to Congress, right? If you've got a problem, you just knock on Congress's door and say, give me authority. I need it. And that might be the safest way to do it if you're worried about regulatory overreach. The second way to do it is to have some sort of concept of digital and say within the digital realm, they can expand their authority 
to cover new cases, they have to do it through rulemaking. They have to make the case. They have to argue why there's a failure of competition or of a, a privacy problem or a content moderation problem. They have to talk about centrality. But if they can make that case through a regulatory process, then they can extend their jurisdiction to something else, say, for example, to the metaverse, right? So that's the other way of doing it. The vagueness there, of course, is the concept of digital, and you're into all the difficulties of how you delimit that. The UK tried to get at that in their piece of legislation on digital markets, and they said, uh, if digital is a core component of the business that you're involved in, then it's potentially subject to regulation. And that idea of a core component of the business that you're involved in would be the delimiting factor. That's a little vague, and it's clearly ripe for some kind of abuse. But that's the other way of trying to make the agency future-proof, give them some authority to extend their own jurisdiction through this mechanism. The other way is just go back to Congress and, and say, you know, we need we need to regulate the metaverse now. Come on, give us the authority and, and see if you can persuade them that there's enough of a reason to do that. Yeah, I think that's interesting because your book also comes out at a time when privacy legislation has been stalled in Congress for a while. Antitrust yeah. legislation has been stalled. Content moderation has been very politicized. And we've also seen that there are trade-offs between these three categories. And I think your book actually has a pretty yeah. neat Venn diagram that discusses that, where some of the arguments against antitrust legislation have been privacy and security, and some of the arguments against privacy legislation have been antitrust and effects on small businesses and vice versa. So I was wondering if you could talk maybe about the trade-offs between these three categories and how a digital regulator could potentially explore these three areas in a way that maybe Congress just wasn't able to break through, at least in the past few years. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a key reason in my mind. Uh, for thinking that there should be a single administrative regulator because there, as that Venn diagram in the book suggests, there's enormous overlap in this area. Almost any measure you can think of that promotes one of the policy objectives also affects the other policy objectives. And so, uh, you know, data portability is one of my favorites. It looks like it, it uh, does both privacy and competition. Uh, it gives people control over their data and it, uh, it makes it easier for, for new entrants to come in and, and compete with established entities. So uh, it sounds great, except, of course, data portability also uh, affects the information, the data of large numbers of people other than the data subject, right? I want to transfer my data to a new social media company. That means all my interactions have to go there. That means everybody else that I've been interacting with, suddenly their information has been moved to a new social media operation. What if they don't want that? I mean, should they have some sort of mechanism for saying no? And and if they can say no, then how do you have an effective data portability regime? So uh, the, the the fix for that is to have the regulator step in and, and try to uh, resolve the issue in some way that balances both concerns. And we've actually had a an example of that. The European Union Working Party 29 of the, the data protection authorities has looked at that question of data portability and it said, here's how to, how to do both. You, you have data portability and you respect the rights of the individuals involved. Yes, you can transfer the data, but no, you can't use it for any purpose other than providing service to the individual who wanted the data transferred. 
So that's a compromise. It may not be perfect, but you're going to need a regulator sitting on top of the system to make those kinds of judgments. And it seems to me that if you have the regulator that's focused only on one particular objective, only pushing privacy, for example, or only pushing competition, or only worried about online safety, if you've got those kind of fragmented responsibilities, you're going to get an unbalanced result. The UK is, is walking right into that trap because they have legislation in place in each of those areas, and they have different regulators assigned to the responsibility for each of them. Ofcom does the social media regulation, the online safety stuff. The uh, information commissioner's office does the privacy stuff and uh, a digital unit inside of the Competition and Markets Authority does the digital regulation for competition. They're all potentially working at cross purposes. The way they try to fix that is they created a digital regulatory cooperation forum where they come together and talk about what they're up to in the hopes of not working at cross purposes and reaching a meeting of minds. And that of course is essential, but I don't think at the end of the day, it's gonna solve the problem because at some point or other, you know, each agency will move forward to implement its own mission. And it, it, it has the authority to do that regardless of what the other agencies might, might think. So I think you're much better off having a single administrative agency where these kinds of synergies and tensions can be looked at and, and the problems minimized and the advantages of synergies can be, can be emphasized. So the book does make a good case for that, but a lot of people tend to be nervous about the idea of an Uber regulator, <laughs> particularly with such a broad swath of subjects under their control. And the, the last chapter is nice because it's where do we go from here? And that's what I want to ask you. My usual answer to where do we go from here on these issues is don't worry about it. California and the European Union will fix it because we are not <laughs> going to get it here in D.C. <laughs> but where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I do think that the, the optimist in me thinks that we pick up where we left off at the end of the last Congress. And I don't think we do it you know, this year. I don't think we do it next year. I think the year after that is is the 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 year of digital regulation. And mm -hmm. and I I do think, I mean, I, you know, who knows who's gonna win the the election and who's gonna control Congress, but I, I do think there's enough of a bipartisan concern over these issues to create the political mm -hmm. wins that will begin to move forward again. I think, you know, it, as as a practical matter, I think this moves forward in a piecemeal fashion. I don't think you're gonna see one of the digital regulator bills move forward, the the ones that well, Warren and Graham have proposed, for example. I think it goes forward separately. So you'll you, probably the most likely one to go forward is the privacy bill. Mm. And and then the competition bill got pretty far. I think if it had ever seen the light of day on the Senate floor, it would have passed. So I think that's likely to be the second one through. And then the transparency legislation, that's trickier because it gets in, you know, caught up in this uh, Section 230 stuff, and uh, that's a really hard one to deal with. Uh, if they can ever hive off those uh, Section 230 liability issues and just focus on transparency measures, I think they could probably make some progress. But that's the hardest one to focus on. My hope is that they can take the, the step of saying, let's fight about 230 over here in this part of the field, and let's do what we can uh, on transparency on this part of the field and uh, and make the progress that they can. If they pass those three pieces of legislation, 
as I say, it'll wind up putting responsibility in the Federal Trade Commission, and voila, you've got it. You've got the single administrative uh, agency with responsibility for each of those policy areas uh, with respect to particular industries, the, the search and social media and electronic commerce. This is an inside baseball question, and I'll let Caitlin have the last word, but let me let me do the inside baseball one, which is that in other areas where we've tried this, it turns out that there are at least 80 congressional committees that claim jurisdiction. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the, this, this, as your book notes right at the start, it spreads over a lot of areas. So what would you do? Would you assign this to one committee? Would you create a new committee? Would you, how would you make it work? I used to work for John Dingle in the House of Representatives, and he was famous for grabbing authority from every other committee that he could possibly grab it from. Uh, but but uh, just look at the Federal Trade Commission, for example. Mm. It's uh, thought, uh, the committees that have jurisdiction over the Federal Trade Commission are two. I mean, the Commerce Committee has authority over its consumer protection function, and the Judiciary Committee has control over its antitrust jurisdiction. And so uh, you've already got that kind of silo yeah. effect where, where, where different congressional committees have different areas that they're responsible for. And that makes it uh, problematic. I do think you'd have to move the, these pieces of legislation through a little bit of a minefield of committee jurisdiction. In the competition policy area, that was pretty much assigned to the Judiciary Committee. So that was solved there. Privacy will almost certainly go through the Commerce Committee's. And content moderation, that's where you've got to split. I mean, both committees want to have a slice of that one. I do think there's a, there's a way through that minefield, but as you point out, it is a minefield, and a lot of things could get in the way of seeing these things through to the end, including the egos of the different personalities involved and, and their interest in preserving jurisdiction for the future. But I think at the end of the day, the need to do something in this area will override that stuff and we'll find a way around those procedural obstacles. Great. Caitlin, any so, final thoughts? Yeah. I just have one final question. So your book came out on November 7th. What responses have you received about the book since it came out? And do you have any reasons for the rest of us to be optimistic about tech regulation going forward? <laughs> well, as I mentioned, the one response from Paul Barrett in Just Security, he says, yeah, this is an optimist guide to tech regulation. And the reason for optimism, I, I think I just I just articulated, I, I do think there's this groundswell of concern about these companies. I was talking to a, a bunch of the people who are involved in the state AG suit against Meta. And here in Washington, we, we don't really feel the concern that's bubbling up about the effect of social media on kids. Uh, but they describe the concern as equivalent to the concern at the grassroots level about fentanyl and guns. And so I, I do think that will bubble up and affect more than just the state AGs. It'll begin to affect the, the people in Congress who make these laws. And that's going to provide the engine that will drive this stuff through. Uh, so that's the optimistic part of me. In terms of other reactions, um, I did an event with Stuart Baker, uh, my, my buddy, on, on Monday, and uh, he gave me a kind of interesting blurb, which has some advantages. He hated the book. He said, Mark has demonstrated that one can write an entertaining, articulate, and well-researched book. I wanted to just stop right there. But then he added, that is egregiously wrong on almost every page. Well, 
Well, I'll I'll just say if Stuart Baker is against it, I am for it. There's a large audience of people just like you. So I'm 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 putting that on the website. Stuart Baker hates it. Yeah. So it is a great book, Mark. Thanks for being on the the show. And Caitlin, any last works or remarks? Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us. So 2025, the year of tech regulation. I'm looking forward to it. That's going to be the subtitle of the book. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of inevitable. I mean, it's taken longer than it should. And to be honest, when we did the laissez-faire approach, it probably no one expected it to last more than 10 years, which yeah. would have been 15 years ago. But great book. Thanks for being on the show. We'll be back in touch. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Thank you.